Intersection is brought to you by Social Health Institute, exploring new and innovative ways for hospitals and healthcare organizations to develop and enhance their social media and digital marketing strategies. Learn more at socialhealthinstitute.com. I personally wanted to, to go to the humanitarian respite center, so I don't see that as a, as a halo as much as uh, that's just something I wanted to do. And vacation is about the things that you want to do. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. What is your greatest passion? My greatest passion, I guess, would be connecting people to missional opportunities so that everybody does something in this world. I'm Ellen Seacrest, and I currently serve as the Minister of Spiritual Formation and Missions at Boulevard Baptist Church in Anderson, South Carolina. I've served in the church there for 26 and a half years, 20 years as the youth minister, and now six years in this role. Ministering at the corner of Boulevard in the world is a big statement for a church that has a congregation of roughly 500 people in Anderson, South Carolina. Ellen Seacrest truly believes in this statement, fundamentally, and each day seeks more missional ways to carry out that goal at Boulevard Baptist Church. As Anderson, South Carolina continues to see exceptional growth from the Hispanic Latino populations, she has been seeking new ways to be a better neighbor, so she found herself drawn to McAllen, Texas, to learn more about immigration, migration, and how she can better educate her congregation in Anderson, South Carolina. What she found was a bigger missional calling. On her second trip to the Catholic Charities Humanitarian Respite Center, downtown McAllen, Texas, she has found a missional calling to engage in more intentional ways to serve these populations. But what she found on this second trip is the need is increasing. She continues to carry out that mission to minister at the corner of Boulevard and the world. Why are you in Texas right now? I'm in Texas for two things. I still had some vacation to use and wanted to come and see my friends, the Minots, who moved here um, eight years ago, nearly. And uh, also because I wanted to go to the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen where I had visited last year. And I knew my friend Marcy would be up for that as well because she has a heart of missions as well. And so we were going to offer any help that we had. Most people, when they go on vacation, you know, they go somewhere like the beach to rest. Or some people, when they go on vacation, they go to get pampered. Or some people go on vacation, they, you know... They do something that's fun, but you go on vacation and go to the center of the immigration debate, really. Why in the world did you do that? Well, I've, I've been to the beach several, several times for some other my vacation opportunities, and uh, I like to do different things. And vacation is about rejuvenation, and for me, it's to to leave Anderson and to go to places to be with people that I love 
And so coming to see Marcy and family um, is always a great opportunity for me to be away. Um, and I really enjoy the opportunity of doing something that's totally different outside of my norm uh, there in Anderson. And so I personally wanted to, to go to the Humanitarian Respite Center. So I don't see that as a as a halo as much as uh, that's just something I wanted to do. And vacation is about the things that you want to do. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So you are a minister. Tell me about your ministerial role in the church and who do you serve and how have you kind of gotten to this place in your ministry life? I um, finished seminary in 1990, served a church in Memphis for two years, and then came to Boulevard Baptist in Anderson, South Carolina in June 1992. And um, I Calling began and when I was 17, and I knew I had the calling to be in ministry, particularly youth ministry, in the local church, and um, came to came there to do that. And as you age and through other experiences, God often gives you a uh, a change of path. You still have that same calling, but you may just be taking a a fork in the road. And as I aged a little bit, that became one of those one of those things through experiences of taking lots of people on mission trips and mission opportunities in Anderson and around the world. And I sensed the the next phase of my spiritual journey and being a, a more heavy heavy emphasis on missions. Um, which plays so into our spiritual formation. So transitioning into that role six years allowed me the opportunity to lead in that way to try to help us as a congregation focus on our missions, focus on our spiritual formation and our own Sabbath, and trying to figure out how to put those three together to, to be better equipping the saints and to be more helpful in this global world. Let's talk about yesterday. Um, I think that's a great transition because I feel like you called me on the phone. And you not only called me, but you FaceTimed me. So you wanted me to see something. What did you see? Knowing your passion for this, I wanted to FaceTime you so you could see the actual facility and what was going on because I knew you really wanted to be here as well um, when I told you about this trip. You said to me on a couple of occasions, I just really wish I could go with you. I just really wish, you know, and I I wish you could too. And we definitely are going to come back. So you will have the opportunity to come again. And so FaceTiming you, I wanted you to see, because you had been here and this was a new facility. So I wanted you to see that. But also what was about to happen, because we knew the two buses from ICE were about to pull up and let off 100 people to come into the facility. Let's describe that process. Where were those people in the process of their journey when they were let off in the uh, the ICE buses to come into the respite center? So all these, these roughly 100 people had been taken to ICE to be processed, and ICE determined whether or not they would provide them the opportunity 
to seek asylum or not. So these were the hundreds that we knew that had been processed and are now given the opportunity. Not saying they're going to get it, but they're at least given the opportunity to do so. But they had traveled here. So let's even back up further. These individuals, you even told me that a good portion of these individuals that have been coming through the respite center in those large numbers are from Guatemala, from Honduras, a lot of people from Honduras. So this was a portion of their journey that has been going on for a while. And my work, because I'm not a Spanish speaker, uh, my work over those couple of days was to uh, make sandwiches and bags for them to take on their journeys and to purchase these items that were needed and clean out the storage closet to to remove stuff from a a closet that was up the front where all the snacks had been kept to actually move them down to the bodega um, to inventory that to see what the needs are because you're feeding five to seven hundred people a day there who are coming through that processing center and so being a non-spanish speaker there's plenty of work to be done there um and they are so organized in what seems to be chaos is super organized chaos because the people who are now part of this system of helping the processing are just there they have halos on their heads to sit there you know one on thursday night they're there till nine o'clock processing people because the bus didn't arrive and um all the people didn't arrive until after four o'clock so once they're there you know i didn't have the opportunity to hear people's stories of how they actually got to the border um i know enough on tv and through media and through some of the workers there that I've heard some of the stories, but I didn't interview any any person that had just entered the country, so I can't speak necessarily for that. But can we assume that these individuals came from somewhere to this location to try to cross, whether they tried to get across so the Border Patrol would pick them up, or they tried to find a way to get through the border, but in some capacity, they were picked right. up by Border Patrol. They were then taken to process and then determined if they were going to be sent back immediately or go through that process to see if they deserve to have asylum. And then after those individuals that had been determined that if they're going to get the opportunity to see if they could get asylum, then they're put on that bus and brought to you. What does that mean to be brought to you? What is the respite center and how do they serve these individuals and why is Border Patrol and ICE have a good enough relationship to drop them off with you or to the respite center for for the volunteers and the people to work with these individuals? So ICE is the place where you go and it is determined. From that point, ICE, until yesterday, brought you to the bus station and dropped you off. There was nothing else to do. Um, and so the Humanitarian Respite Center, through a man named Eli, who's the director of the center, had worked it out with ICE. Would you be willing to drive them the extra two miles to the center rather than dropping them at the bus station? Because what we then have to do 
we meaning the humanitarian respite center these are these are from it's what eli would say is then the van has to go and pick these people up and bring them to the respite center so you're making five six seven trips to pick up the people and bring them so you're creating a, a lot more vulnerability for that large gathering of people because they were just dropped off on the outside on the side street of the bus station and 99% of them well I'd say that I might know that number for sure but the high number of them do not speak English and so you're dropping them on a corner and that creates even more despondency or desperateness and so they have this good relationship with ICE who knows what they do and they said to the people, we're dropping you off at the bus station. The humanitarian respite center will come and pick you up and take you there to help you figure out how to get to your destination in the U.S. So they worked with them and said, would you just drive the two extra miles and drop them off? That will save everybody headache. And so just beginning yesterday, did that happen? So, which is a phenomenal piece. And it is a beautiful story that they have this good relationship with ICE and that ICE values this respite center, obviously, that they're willing to do that because they don't have to. But they see the great value of, of getting them with a little bit better start and creating a place of safety because ICE has done their job and now they need somebody else to intervene because they can't do anything else for that so they dropped them off at the center we we knew when they were coming that's why we were outside and they immediately get in these couple of lines and they're two different lines and then they're brought through the side door where a lady speaks to every individual person and gives them a number and finds that a, a, a blue card with a number a laminated card with a number and then tells them what's about to happen. That you're getting ready to come inside. You're going to stay here in this line, and until you're until you get processed, which takes a good while. And so, in the meantime, as that processing starts, they then take people, some people, and let you go ahead and get your shower, get fed, um, and all, and then go back to the line to your number is called and and also what happens in that process let's say Juan and Maria and their two children are called up they go to this table um, the people there greet them find out some of their story where they're going because every person there has a sponsor in the U.S. that is willing to pay for them to get there so Juan and Maria have family in Maryland and so they use the telephones. Juan and Maria have the number of where they're going. And so this social work type person um, calls them, makes the connection for them, and then says, okay, we're going to put Juan and Maria and the two kids on a bus to you. They will leave on the bus on Thursday, but we need a credit card to buy this bus ticket. So the people on the other line uh, give them that information. They purchase that bus ticket, and um, 
and they are going to be the receiver of Juan and Maria when their bus arrives at 2.42 a.m. on Thursday. So then that social work type person goes over all that documentation that ICE has given them that says your asylum date for processing is, most of them are six months out now, so it may say May 14, 2019. And so they review all of that. They tell them how, what's going to happen, where they have to be, and that they want them to show up and be part of this system that the worst thing they could do is not show up, that they need to be legal in this country, and they want them to be legal in this country, but they have to follow the rules. And so all that's put into that manila envelope, and then that writing is on the front that says, I do not speak English. Please help me get on the right bus. Please help me. And the back has all the bus information. So then... They, um, if they're in the need of clothes, because everybody comes with nothing. Um, and so they get there, and ICE takes your shoelaces uh, and your belts away from you. So um, if they don't have slip-on shoes, then they get um, shoelaces and a belt for their pants if they need them. And they get to take a shower. They get change of clothes. They get food. And then they wait for the bus. Then when it's time for the bus to come, they um, or to go to the bus station, um, a volunteer was there this while we were there, a man named Bob from St. Louis, and Bob is running the van back and forth. So they get on the speaker and say, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, if you're uh, riding the, um, the bus anytime between 4 and 5 p.m., be here at the door. And we're looking for, you know, for Javier and Maria Lopez. We're looking for so-and-so and so-and-so. And then they come to the door and he sees that there are 20 people. Then he has them stay there. He comes back to the room where we're making sandwiches. He gets 20 of the bags that we put two bottles of water and eight snacks in. And then we put four sandwiches from the sandwich refrigerator that are in Ziploc bags. We put those in the bag, retie the bag, and everybody gets a bag. He hands the bags out on the bus, and uh, the van, and then we ride in the van to the uh, bus station. Everybody unloads and uh, in a nice orderly fashion in one line. And there's a volunteer at the bus station who greets them, tells them about what's to happen. She makes sure they all get on, um, get their bus tickets. Um, and all, and then waits there and to make sure that they all have gotten on their buses, and then they're off. And the job of the Humanitarian Respite Center is done at that piece. Now a quick break to ask you for your help. Did you know Intersection Podcast is part of a network of shows, and we're looking for your feedback. We would appreciate your help if you could take a few minutes to fill out a short listener survey. Go to survey.intersectionpodcast.com. That is survey.intersectionpodcast.com. We hope you'll share your experience. Hi there, this is Bobby again. We need your help. 
If you like Intersection, we'd really appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review. Whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. This is important because it helps others find our show. Thank you so much for your help. So this is a, I would say, different narrative because lately we've seen all these images in our national and local media of people um, stopping these caravans of people coming in, so to speak. And it's filled with uh, just a lot of that narrative. Whereas this is a narrative of ICE is truly working with some individuals to seek to allow them to go through the asylum process. And then there is some, some generosity, I would say, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but recognition and partnership with the respite center, that they're willing to drive them over these individuals over to the respite center and help them get food and find a place that's safe and start their journey in America or the United States of America in a positive light, because they know that if they can go through this process, more than likely they will comply. It's a different narrative, wouldn't you say, Ellen, than we're seeing? Yeah, different in that um, I think because they do see the value, and it also affirms that we want you to do this legally, and we don't have, we can't be part of the next phase. Now, whether this happens at every area, you know, along this border at these other respite centers, I have no clue. But this one is one of the larger ones, and it's doing it right. And that's why it's a great place to partner in with. This whole thing still hurts, right? It, It still hurts to know that people are having to travel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles because you know that where they live is so bad, they're willing to risk their life to get to something different, right? right? And we know that the struggle that they have to go through just to get across and the worries and you're taking your little child in the middle of nowhere with no end in sight. So there's that whole humanitarian part of it. It's just, is unthinkable. But here there is something, there's a lot of positive conversations happening in McAllen. And I'm asking this question specifically is here you are taking your vacation. You're you've got this magnet that's pulling you to McAllen to go see a difference in a year. But then you're like, you know what? I'm taking my friend, Marcy. And that's a different conversation there because it's one thing to go help. It's another thing to take a friend because then you're putting them in a position to to join this conversation. What was that like? That, just to say, you know what, I really want someone to go with me, especially someone that shares the same values as I do. You know, this this kind of work we know is not for everybody. And we know, uh, you and I know, in our own setting, um, everybody doesn't believe in this work. Everybody. He does not believe that we should even be helping anything. Um, And also, you walk a fine line of that. And as a minister, you minister to your whole congregation. And I know there are people that would not be happy about that um, and all. But I 
I don't do it necessarily to make people happy. I do it because I feel like it's a calling from God to care for the least of these. But asking asking Marcy is an easy piece because I know we're very like-minded in that. So, And also, it's a great opportunity. Her church has been um, here in Belton, Texas, is involved in lots of ministry opportunities. They've been to Eagle Pass several times to, to, um, to do mission work, and they've created long-lasting partnerships. Um, and that they live here in Texas where there is a large Latino population and they've got several international families um, in their congregation as well. So it, it's an easy piece for me to say to Marcy, hey, can we go do this? Uh, one, because I want to come to their house and see them, but also she's willing to do the work. We have the same type of mindset about missions um, and um, it's six hours from here from her house there. So it also provides us, you know, the logistic piece of, of being able to get there because we need a car and she's got a car so we can drive there and use the car to get around to go buy all those things that we needed for the center. Um, so there's practicality pieces of that. You know, one of the things that makes me think back, Ellen, is when we were at the respite center and when it was in the other location before they moved to where they are now. We were there when a young lady had just traveled from Guatemala and and she was pregnant and she had shared her story about how she went through the processing and I think she spent the night in a very cold jail and that we only got to see a few people go through. But what I saw yesterday through our FaceTime or uh, our FaceTime conversation is a volume thing. Was that how was that different? How, how, was were you expecting that? Uh, no, no. I knew from Sister Norma Pimentel's post on Facebook and all the volume of it by number because she would she references it on things and. She's been in the media a good bit lately, so I've seen some of those pieces uh, and all. But when you open that door and you see all those people at one time, and as I said, it's it's what would appear to you and me as a little chaotic, really wasn't chaotic. It was just volume because all these people, when we arrived on uh, Thursday morning, there was just this massive line of people uh, waiting to be in that process, processing piece. And then as you look down this long corridor, there are people sitting outside rooms. There's people inside rooms. There's children playing. There are people having conversation. Uh, there are people sleeping because you don't know how, how long and how far they've walked. And then they spent the night in, you know, at least probably at least one night, if not two, at ice. And you don't sleep well because you get that one moon blanket, I call it, that silver thermal heated blanket kind of thing. And you eat at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m. And you don't have anything. So you're exhausted. And I can't imagine the mental exhaustion that you have as well. But then there's joy from people because they're in a safe place. And everybody who has come in the door 
has heard the word, bienvenidos, welcome. And most of the others are, you know, who are Spanish speakers say, we are glad to see you. And I think just those welcoming words helps that chaos be such a calm process. There's no walking security guard around or anything. They have one at nighttime because they're open 24-7, but they don't have theft. They didn't have fights. They don't have, there's nothing going on. These people are just beyond grateful. I think when you've lived that life of fear, that even this life of destitute seems better. I think about traveling myself. And now that I'm a father, um, I think about traveling with the family. You know, you go on a trip, whether it's a vacation trip or something of something that's more than an hour. Let's say it's a couple hours. And lo and behold, you know, you get about halfway down the road. And one of the kids will say, Daddy, are we there yet? And you're like, nope, getting close. Daddy, are we there yet? Nope, getting close. And when you get there, it's just like, you know, especially if you're driving home, there's something about that, that relief where you walk in your door and you're just like, oh, finally home after a couple hours. And the kids aren't asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that's a, I realize that's a first world look at this, their travels. But imagine walking and having children. Are we there yet? And then what's, what's the new home and what is the relief? What, what makes us feel like we made it? And one of the things that I noticed on the Guatemalan girl when she walked through the door was the clapping, welcoming her. And you could see this relief come across her face as she, it was like her shoulders were completely tightened up when she walked in and as she talked to more people and went through the process in the respite center, you see her shoulders start falling and relaxing in just a few hours of time. Well, I think, you know, while we were FaceTiming yesterday, um, you saw that happen immediately. You know, there's this look of getting off this bus and they're looking around, you know, it's different terrain in itself. And you've just gone through this jail thing and now you're loaded up on this bus and you're just told you're going over to this place. Good luck. And, and which has to be fearful enough, especially, I mean, I think it's fearful regardless if you're a male or female, but if you're a female traveling, you know, with two little children, I can't imagine the heightened stress that you're under uh, when you're traveling alone like that and the fear of that. But nor can I, understand the desperation that I'm willing to do that either. And so you saw on Facebook, I mean, on FaceTime yesterday, when I started saying bienvenidos to those people that were getting off the bus to get in the line, the change that happened. I mean, the look was totally different, just like that little kid in the red coat. You know, he immediately, it was like, there's a little bit of joy. All of a sudden, somebody spoke to me. Somebody has welcomed me, and here, here we go. You know, I, I think I think about it a little scripturally for these people of uh, Moses wandering and wandering and walking and walking and walking, 
that must be how that caravan feels. They're trying to walk to the promised land. And the promised land isn't necessarily all this money, but it's a place of safety and love. And yeah, they need a, they need a job. They need a place to provide for their family because that's what they want to. But the fact that you are trying to just to get somewhere safe has to be unbelievable. Our friend Robbie constantly prays, I just pray somewhere safe with someone good for you. And that's what we pray for those people. Somewhere safe. I knew I had to interview you the day after going and to the uh, respite center. I, I could have waited till you got back and the audio quality would have been so much better, but I don't think you would have had the, the reflection that you have right the second. Um, I don't think you've been able to describe what you saw more as vividly and what I would love is, as we close this out, what do you leave us with from this experience the last couple of days? I would say, get ready. We're coming. We're coming back. And if you can't go, it's okay. Because we're going to do something else. We're going to do something in our community um, to be a good neighbor to our community. And we're going to figure out how we're going to help these people coming into McAllen. This project is so big and it is so godly that it can't be done alone. And we can't leave it just to the Catholic charities of the RGB to do it. It is a global problem or a, a global situation, not a problem, that we all have to have a hand in. We all are part of this world. And we have to figure out our piece in it. And it's a humanitarian piece, as I said, for me. It's not a legal piece because there are people to work on that and fix that. I, I can't worry for that piece. I've got to care for this piece. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and exploration. Most importantly, the many intersections inside the world of storytelling. Intersection is powered by the Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts exploring digital marketing and online patient engagement strategies, CIO and technology strategies, the challenges of the online physician, the power of the e-patient, and most importantly, the power of storytelling. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.